you can look, look above your head on the clotheslines and you can see pictures from, well, from our community, from our town, from our, our cities, our areas, our neighborhoods, people, people around close to us who we rub shoulders with every day, who God loves. As I was um, studying, I, I went back and remembered that there was a, a play called Old Town. How many of you have ever seen that play or something, read the book? Anybody? A few of you? Four? Good. There was a play named Our Town that was written back in the 30s by Thornton Wilder. The setting was a fictional town of Grover's Corners in New Hampshire. Now, the play was unique for two reasons. One is the stage manager was the narrator. And he, he regularly broke one of the principles of drama. That is, the people on the stage pretend like they don't know the audience is there, and the audience pretends like they're not there. But the, but the stage manager was the narrator who regularly interacted with the, with the audience as the play was going on. The, the second reason it was a really unique play is because it was performed with almost no, no scenery or no set or very little props. It, w- it would have looked more like a human video than a play. Uh, back in those days, for sure, there were uh, grand scenery and props and support. Wilder thought that the theater had become too evasive. And, uh, and there was too much stuff happening. And so his answer was to take the actors in the play Old Town and let them mime most of the props. They would just pretend like they were there. Our town has has three acts. The first act is about the routines and the necessities of life. It's just sort of establishing everyday life. The second act moves a little deeper into the theme of love and marriage. And then the final act moves right into the question, what is the meaning of life? And 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 the deal with the whole play is to it's all sort of played out in the ordinary, everyday routines of life. And, and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, well, I was thinking about our city, our area, our, the, the people that we know. And as I thought about it, I thought, isn't that really the deal with us? Isn't the real deal for us... How do we get Christ's presence and His Word into the daily routines of our life? How, 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 do, how do we get Jesus' presence into the daily routine of a person's life who doesn't know it? We're not looking for, we're not looking for an event. We're looking for a life. We're not, we're not looking for just an occurrence. We're looking for how, how do you get Jesus' presence and His Word inside another person's life who doesn't know Him? And as I thought about those acts, the way they work, I thought, isn't that, isn't that sort of how evangelism works? In, in, in the first encounter, in the first scene, as you get to know someone who doesn't know Christ, isn't it true that most of what you talk about is like right up here on the surface level? Boy, how about the games yesterday? How about, how about the weather? How about politics? How about the economy? How about, how about all of that stuff? But the deeper the relationship goes... 
then those, then those under, the, under the surface issues start to rise up. Well, you know, my family's having a problem or I'm having a problem in my marriage or, or how do you work this out? And then when you get to the deepest part of a relationship with a person who doesn't know God, it's always going to be the same question. What's the meaning of life? What's life about? What's the purpose of my life? And, and I thought about, isn't that sort of how that whole scenario works its way out? You know, Jesus once told a parable when he described it as a farmer who would go and spread seed on different kinds of ground. So, so if you remember the parable, you remember that Jesus said, the seed is the same, the ground is different. Some seed falls on good ground, some seed falls on thorny ground, some seed falls on different kinds of ground. It's the soil. So, so let's talk about the soil for a little bit this morning. Let's talk about the soil that you and I have. We only have one seed. I mean, it comes in a lot of different packages. It comes in a lot of different varieties. But it's really only one seed. But a lot of different soil. Let's talk about the soil we have to plant in in America. The American soil is changing rapidly. I, I ran into this Thomas Rayner uh, from the Billy Graham School of Evangelism has, has shown us uh, what I, what I showed you was where where we are in America last week as it relates to Christianity. Where where are we in a, in America? Christians are the minority in America. What I didn't show you yet is where America is headed. Now, Thomas Rayner at the Billy Graham School of Evangelism has basically outlined it like this by generation. What is the percentage of each generation that would say that they're a born-again Christian? The builder generation, the generation in the 30s and 40s, 65% of that generation would say that they are, are born-again Christians. The boomer generation, 50s and 60s. The, the Bill Clinton generation would say, 35% of that generation would say they are born-again Christians. My generation, the Gen Xers, 15% of my generation would say they're born-again Christians. This young lady that stood before you and sang this morning, the, the millennial generation, 4% of her generation would tell you that they were born-again Christians. Do, do you see where we're headed? If nothing else were to move, time on its own would de-Christianize America. Just sheer time by itself would unravel. Let's talk about the American soil. 1% of American churches that are growing are growing by life transformation. Are growing by a person who doesn't know God coming to know God and coming to that church rather than people who already know God just coming from another church to theirs. 1%. Now, now what I'm trying to do is only give you the most revealing statistics because I, I realize they are, you know, they're like, like reading the phone book. This one shocked me. 90% of Americans cannot define the Great Commission. 
Can't define it. Don't know what it is. The, the Great Commission. Let's go closer to home. In the last 20 years, the Christian population in the state of Alabama has dropped 9%. In our town, in our state, in our part of the country, the buckle of the Bible belt. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is, the soil has shifted. The, America, the soil that we're planting the seed in has changed and is still changing and is on a rapid path of change. And, and that changes everything about how you do the Great Commission. It changes everything about how you reach your community, how you reach your neighbor. What, what we have to understand is we're increasingly on mission in a culture that is non-Christian. The way you do ministry in a Christian culture and the way you do ministry in a non-Christian culture are, are two different things. We're no longer in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon. It's a different deal. Now, now what's the major difference in, in doing ministry? There's a lot, but let me give you one big one today. In doing ministry in a Christian culture and doing ministry in a, in a changing, a non-Christian, a secular culture. The main difference is between harvesting and sowing. We have to begin to think about salvation as a process and not as an event. We have to think about it as a process. I like to call it pre-Christian discipleship. What that means is preparing the soil for harvest. Now look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4 verse 35. Let me give you the backdrop of these verses before we read them. Do you remember when Jesus met the woman at the well? And, and the disciples, it, it, I don't know, it looks like they passed her by and they didn't realize that their real, their real mission was not to do the details of what they thought it was. Their real mission was to touch that lady. But they passed her by, but Jesus didn't. He got it. And he stayed there. And you know the exchange. He says, if you, if you drink from this well, you're never going to thirst again. Then the disciples come back. And they went into town to get lunch or something. They come back and they ask Jesus, are you hungry? And Jesus said, uh, I already ate, basically. What do you mean you already ate? There's nothing out here but a field and a well. And he says to them, my food is to do the will of the, my Father who sent me. I'm, I'm eating on something that you don't know anything about. And then comes John chapter 4, verse 35. Let's look at it together. John chapter 4, verse 35. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now, he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. There's a great kingdom principle in this passage that I think we have by and large missed. I, I, don't, I don't think that we've maybe heard it the way that Jesus said it. We've been so focused on, on the, the whiteness or the ripeness 
of the harvest field. The, the fact he says the harvest is white, the harvest is ready. We've been so focused on that that I think we've missed one of the, one of the deepest evangelism principles in Scripture. What if, what if the harvest isn't always ripe? What if the harvest isn't always white? I, look, I've preached that. I've preached that a hundred times. I, I probably will again. But what if the harvest isn't always ripe? What if it's not always ready? What if it's not always white? I know a missionary couple in Italy on their second term who, have, who have, by the time I met with them, had spent four years in Italy. And, and they had only seen four people come to faith in Christ after four years. And the other missionaries in Italy were amazed at how effective they had been. The harvest is not ripe in Italy. The fields are not white there. There's a, there's a lot of work that's got to be done. There's a lot of darkness that's got to be penetrated. There's a lot of things that have to be pulled down. Jesus was about to turn the work of the, of the harvesting over to his laborers. And we focus so much on the, on the ripeness of the fields, I think we've missed the principle of how the harvest works. He said the disciples have reaped where they had not sown. The disciples were like farmhands who were hired once the crops were ready to harvest, but missed the planting season. Their hands had no calluses on them from breaking up the soil. Their backs weren't sore from bending over and pulling up weeds. Their necks weren't thick and tanned from the summer sun. They were hired in the cool of the fall when the fruit hung low on the trees. And they walked through there in, in their region just picking the fruit. And Jesus was talking about the harvest of human history. It was ripe because all the work that the kings of the Old Testament, all the work that the priests of the Old Testament, all the work of the prophets, all the work of the Old Testament saints, all the work of Abraham and Isaac and Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David, all the work that had been done had come to a point in human history where the Bible says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. And in the fullness of that moment when Jesus was there, he says, the harvest is ready. Because it had been cultivated across generations by, by intercessors and priests and prophets and prophecies. This principle will help you as you try to reach out to those in your family who don't know Christ. If you can begin to see salvation as a process and not as a single event. We have seen salvation as an event. We make the altar call. People respond. They weren't saved before. Now they're saved. And that's it. It's done. The deal is, though, even Billy Graham's association will tell you, somewhere around 5% or less of the people who respond to those calls stay in the faith. Because you have an event, you have a moment, you have an occurrence. 
most of the evangelism in the last several decades that's been done in America has been done in church buildings and in crusades. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to be real clear about this. I'm going to give you my opinion. That's all it is. It's not, not what Jesus said there. It's my opinion. My opinion is, is that in American life, statistics will show you we are running out of harvest. The harvest is not ripe, and we're running out of it. The harvest fields in America are drying up. The harvest that has been cultivated decades past has been harvested, and we're now in a season where another harvest has to be cultivated. A couple of years ago, my wife and I had hung out at the baseball fields a lot with our boys, and we got to know parents of other players, and, and most of them were, were non-churched. And my wife had, had uh, just developed this relationship with this one lady who, who she, would, she would spend time with at the field if she got a chance. And, and one day this lady found out that uh, my wife and I uh, served as pastors in our church. And, and the lady looks at her and says, you don't, you, you don't seem like a pastor's wife to me. Now, I don't know, I don't know if you heard what she just said. But she just opened the door. She just opened the door. In, in our, in our, when we do evangelism in a Christian nation, our, our, our teaching would tell us the next thing you say is something like this. You know, some short explanation for that. Why don't you and your husband come and join us at church this Sunday? With the concept of, if you'll come to church this Sunday, maybe God will change your life. Any time that we begin to see God working in another person, we can't figure out what to do with it, so we just invite them to church. Hey, there's worse things. And there's worse places to invite them. But, but the problem is, in Christian America, people hear that one way. They say, yeah, I've been... If you're dealing with a person with a church background, they say, yeah, I know I've been needing to find a church, and you know, maybe this is it. You're dealing with a person with a non-church background, you know what they think? Church is for church people. I'm not a church person. It'd be like saying to somebody, why don't you come play golf with me? You say, well, I don't play golf. Golf is for golfers. I'm not a golfer. And, and, to, and to a non-Christian, to a, to a totally out there person, what they can't fathom is, why is it when they ask you a question about God, you give them an answer about church? I know it's natural for us, but they don't make the connection. They, they, they don't assume that. So once they open their heart to Jesus, they'll begin to understand. But what I'm saying is, is when you get to that critical moment, don't muddy the water. Start to invite them to God. The next line behind, you don't seem like a pastor's wife to me. The next line is not, we'll come to church on the Sunday. The next line is, you should have known me before. I wish you'd have known me the way I was before God met me. God is, well, he's changed my life. And, and, and I can't tell you the great things that he's done in my life. You see the difference? 
One is you're trying to say, what you're asking, you just open the door. What you're asking is about a God whose love is beyond measure. And I don't want to get into something controversial with you, but you know what? I wish you'd have known the way I was before this. And then, and then when they say, well, how did that happen? Now the door's open again. The, the, the next line is you look for that open door to encourage them and you look for that open door to begin to pray for them. Well, what's going on in your life? And they begin to unravel the story. And, and then, th- before you know it, their heart has become open to God. And, and then you can make the connection to the body of Christ. In Christian America, the way that we reached out is we would connect a person to church in the hopes that they would connect to God. And then, we would, and then if we, as we see them come along, we'd connect them to ourselves. What I'm saying now is you've got to begin to see yourself as a missionary in your town, in your community. Connect people to you and then connect them to God and then connect them to the body. And as Christ fills their heart, they'll begin to sense something missing and they'll long for the family of Christ. They'll long for the body of Jesus. But they have to be brought along a different line. And then you'll find it much more effective. Celebrate America this past summer was one of the most unbelievable events. Wasn't it? Incredible. Uh, there There was strategic prayer done over that place. And the word that I heard from person after person after person after person after person is, I've never been around 8,000 people that were that calm. I've never been in a crowd like that where it just seemed like there was a goodness about it. Everything wasn't perfect, but, but there, was a, there was an openness. Well, so, several people, as I'm packing up my car that night, 11 o'clock, out in the wet grass, Veterans Park, say, hey, this was incredible. And we'll know if it worked if we see these people at church tomorrow. And I said, that's not how we'll know it'll work. That's evangelism in a Christian nation. We're doing evangelism in a nation where the soil has changed. We have to cultivate a harvest. What is Celebrate America? It's cultivating a harvest. It's getting Christians and non-Christians up in there close together and, and letting that experience build relationship so that the doors might open. No, I'll tell you when you'll know it'll work. You'll know it'll work as the years go by if the harvest starts coming in. Nobody plants a seed in the ground and says, we'll know it'll work if we can eat off of it tomorrow. I got a tomato plant, I'm going to put it in the ground. Tomorrow if I come out, there are red tomatoes on it. That tomatoes work. If not, cursed tomatoes, I don't want any more. No, you put it in the ground and it, you know, wilts and you water it and you fertilize it and you nurture it and you pull the weeds and you pick the insects off of it and you pray. <laughs> and, and if all that works right, I don't know, what, what's the deal? What's a, what's a fruit place at a tomato? 30, 60 days, something like that? In a while... That thing will produce fruit. 
But it has to be cultivated. Cultivated. And that's what I'm saying. We're in a time in our area, we've got to cultivate a harvest. Let me tell you one of the things that I think has... um, One of the doctrines, because it's been misapplied, has hurt us in this regard. It's funny to me how as the American culture becomes more consumeristic and impatient, we bend our doctrines to fit it. Let me give you one. Okay, there are people inside American Christianity that fully believe that Jesus is coming back in this generation. All right, uh, that's fine. I have no argument with that. Outside of the fact you have no scripture to base it on, I have no argument with that. The Jesus, when he was on earth, said, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father. The implication is, is that not even he knew it at the time. It's not hurt us because it's not true. It is true. Jesus is coming. Everything that we should do should be in light of the fact that there is, a, there is an imminent return of Christ. I believe it. But it's how we've applied it. Let me read a quote to you from a, a person you'll recognize. They said this, God will not be able to bear this wicked world much longer, but will come with the dreadful day and chastise the scorner of his word. In other words, the world has gotten so evil, Jesus has to come back quick, soon. Do you know who said that? Martin Luther 400 years ago. Jesus is not sitting by the emergency brake, waiting for things to get bad enough to pull it and come back. Jesus is on his own timetable. He, he like has a, we talked about in the offering, God's economy. God has a time economy. At the fullness of time, Jesus came the first time. At the appointed time, he'll come the second time. It might be before today's over. It might not. It might not. And what do we do? It, it, the problem with, with the problem with the, with the, consumeristic urgency of it is we can feel like the people who ran their credit card up in 1988 and went and stood on a hill in Arkansas waiting for them to come back. wonder if they got those bills paid off yet. We can feel, it can feel like that. We're way, the world's gotten so dark and, and, and as, as, as American culture moves away from Christian to non-Christian, we feel less able to relate to it all the time. The world is getting darker. It's getting harder. It's getting more sinful. It's getting more frustrating. I understand it less and less and less. Oh, that must mean that Jesus is about to come. No, maybe what it means is it's time to sow. Maybe what it means is, is we have to cultivate another harvest. So what we have to do is live like Jesus is coming today, but plan like he's not. Are you with me? You can exhale now. Most modern churches in America today were founded during a time when the American fields were white for harvest in the 50s and 60s because the Great Depression generation cultivated a harvest. And it came about in the 50s and 60s. And boy, did we have a harvest. We had an incredible harvest. But harvest only lasts as long as harvest lasts. 
And the soil of our culture continues to erode. And Jesus said that one day, in John chapter 4, Jesus said that one day, the sower and the reaper would be happy together. The sower and the reaper would rejoice together. But what if the sower decides not to sow? Well, in that case, we better pray Jesus comes fast because we're not going to have a harvest. We're going to have a famine. Harvest has to be cultivated for. I asked Pastor Micah to come. There once was a farmer who broke ground, planted seed, watered, fertilized, pulled the weeds, watched over the fields, and the day came for harvest, and he harvested the fields. And he took those fields and the fruit of those fields and he took it to his family. And that night, as they always did at harvest time, they had a celebration. And they ate and they enjoyed each other and they celebrated because the harvest had come in and they enjoyed that so much. It wasn't long, though, that that joyful celebration was just a memory. And it was time to plant again. And so he went back out in the hot sun and he started breaking the ground and he started fertilizing and he started weeding and he started planting and he started watering. And the harvest came again and there he was back with his family. The harvest had come in celebrating again. And one day it dawned on him how much he disliked planting. He said, I don't want to plant anymore. It's hot. The ground's dry and broken, cracked. It's hard to work. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to harvest. That's going to be my deal. So he went out and harvested And what he decided to do is once every week, he would go and harvest. And he would sit around the table with his family and he would celebrate and enjoy the harvest. Rejoice over what had come in. And he did. And the next week he did again. And he stopped planting. And he stopped fertilizing. He stopped watering. He stopped pulling the weeds. And he'd go back out and gather gather harvest but then the harvest got more scarce and he'd have to stay out longer to get enough to celebrate with and he'd have to stay out longer and he was picking through the field and he'd have to walk farther to get the same amount he used to till one day he went out and he came in with an empty sack and there was nothing in it and his family looked at him and said what are we going to do there's no harvest left And he said, I guess the only thing to do is pack up and abandon these fields and go find other fields where they're still harvesting. And we'll eat what they have. You see? In the work of God, in the Great Commission, the reaper and the sower will one day join in heaven. And rejoice.
But our soil is changing. And we've got to cultivate it. And what, and what all of these things are about in Shelby County are sowing and watering and cultivating and building relationships and serving and praying and loving. And as we do, we water, and we fertilize, we scatter the seed. But as you do, it won't come in 24 hours. It won't come overnight. But as you do, the harvest will come in again. The wisest man who ever lived said to everything and every activity under the sun, there is a time and a purpose. He said there is a time to sow and there's a time to reap. And what I'm suggesting to you is, in America, it's time to sow. It's time to sow again. And the harvest will come again.